You're listening to an audio sermon from Hope Bible Church Kelowna. For more information about our church, please visit hopekelowna.ca. In university, I took a psychology course at Trent University in Oshawa. And they, uh, they had this experiment that they made us do where they give you, uh, well, they don't give you, they tell you this experiment, you have to reason through it without the objects, but they give you a, what they say is a box of tacks, a candle, and uh, a s- small thing of uh, matches, and it's called the candle problem, and what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to find a way to get the candle to sit on the wall and be attached to the wall in the most efficient way with those few tools that you have, and so we racked our brains, we came up with all sorts of ideas, and what they would continually say is that's, the mo- that's not the most efficient way, there is a more efficient way, and we try maybe, what if we melted the wax to stick the candle? What if, we, um, what if we tried to poke the matches through the wall and make a little like ledge, and they said that, doesn't, that isn't what works. What they said is to pour out all the tacks, take the box of tacks, and pin it to the wall put the candle in it, and light it with the match. And the reason why they do this is they they try to show you a thing called functional fixedness. Functional fixedness means that you're going to look at this problem, you're going to look at your resources, and you weren't thinking of the box of tax, the box, as something could be used. You were just thinking about the tax. And, And it's true. Whenever they asked us, not a single person in our large classroom thought of the box as being something to be used. And it's functional fixedness. We see an object and we jump to a conclusion of what we think it can be used for, or we totally reason it out. It's, it's like, uh, for another example, is like a hammer. A hammer, can, we see a hammer and we think of nails, right? We think of using it for construction, but a hammer can be many things. It can be uh, a paperweight, it could be a doorstop, or if your uh, wife is not around, it makes for a great toy for toddlers, okay? Um, <laughs> You know, today's teaching is uh, from God's word, and what it's going to do is it's actually going to change and, and realize in us that maybe we have a functional fixedness about money and material. Maybe we've been thinking about it one way when Jesus wants us to see it in another light, see it be used in another manner. And, uh, and it's actually, we're just going to continue. We were in Luke chapter 15 last week. And uh, I've been, I was offered the opportunity to, to continue to preach uh, this week. And so I th- said, let's just go to Luke 16. And, uh, and Luke 16 is a, is a beautiful and wonderful passage, but it takes, some, takes a bit of work to understand it. And so I'm just praying that by God's spirit and uh, by, uh, by our understanding that we will come under God's teaching today. And I think what's going to happen is we're going to be surprised. We're going to be surprised with what God has to say about money and material. And so Jesus is continuing this theme that he had been going through in Luke chapter 15, this theme of lost and found. We were talking about the the lost sheep, the lost coin, and then we were talking about the lost son. And he's continuing this loss and gain financial theme that he is going along into chapter 16 with yet another parable. And we're going to see that this parable relates back to the prodigal son story in many ways. Now, as we continue into this passage, we're going to see that God invites those who are, have been found. He's now speaking into the life and saying, here's what I want you to understand. How to make earthly investments with heavenly rewards. 
That's where he is going with this. He is taking this parable of the prodigal son and moving to another parable that's a surprise parable. And we're going to read that right now. So join me in Luke chapter 16, verses 1 to 14. He also said to the disciples, so before, if you, can't, if you were here last week, or if you haven't been in the context of this passage, we were uh, finding out that there was a great crowd in Luke chapter 14. Then in Luke 15, the, Jesus is speaking to tax collector sinners and Pharisee scribes, and now he's speaking to his disciples. He's speaking to those who have chosen to give their life to follow him. And this is what he says, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man has, was wasting his possessions. And he called him, the manager, the owner man, called the manager, and the owner said to the manager, what is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. Or in the great words of Donald Trump, you're fired. <laughs> and the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking away the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig. And I'm too ashamed to beg. So this manager, as we can see, he's a, a white collar worker. He's not willing to do some trades work to make some money. He's not willing to beg. He says, I've decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So he's come up with a plan. He's been thinking. He's got this aha light bulb above his head moment. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. You owed a hundred, now you owe 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. And here's where Jesus continues to comment. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Jesus continues to speak on this passage. He says, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And then continuing, the Pharisees were listening in. This is a lesson for the disciples, but the Pharisees are listening in. And this is what it says. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. This is the word of the Lord. Now, before we get too far into this passage and into this parable and unpacking it in, from Jesus' teaching, I want to clear the air in the room, and I, I can't get rid of the smoke. That's not what I mean. I mean the proverbial air in the room. <clears throat> Religion and money has a history. Religion and money has a history. Let's be honest. Whether it be in recent history with prosperity gospel preachers who are typically wealthy preachers who, um, whose collective teaching points to the idea that God wants you to be healthy and wealthy and they ask you to give money and it'll be multiplied and that's out there right now. And that's not true. And people have, are doing this right now because religion and money has a history. 
Even around the time of the Reformation, the Reformation was a response to very many things, but one of those things was this thing called indulgences. The Catholic Church was doing this thing called indulgences. And indulgences were a teaching out of the Catholic Church of giving to the church as a way to reduce your punishment after death. That's what indulgences were. And and indulgences were this way that they were taxing people, really, asking people to pay money to lessen their punishment after death. Johann Setzel is one who would ride, he would ride into a German village. He would set up a theatrical stage and dramatically convince people to give their money to purchase relatives out of purgatory, or in some cases, prepay for their own sins. Just an abomination. He would say, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings the soul from purgatory springs. That was his slogan. This is absolutely unbiblical. This is not, this is completely unethical. But religion and money has a history. Even in Jesus' day, Jesus in his ministry, in the final week of his ministry, he shows up in Jerusalem, he goes to the temple, and he, and as many people remember, he flips tables, he makes a whip to drive out those who were in the temple, and they were charging money to people to worship God. They were charging people money to worship God, making money off of sacrifices, making money off of exchanges. You see, the reality is that religion and money has their history. And that's why I think at the end of this passage, we see the Pharisees kind of ridiculing Jesus because they're part of religion. They were part of a religion where they were doing this. They were taxing people money. They were scrutinous of what people said about money. And that's why they're listening to Jesus at this point. Jesus is speaking to his disciples and they're listening in. You know why they're listening in? Because what you say about money says a lot about what you say about God. And so they're listening in. They're going, hmm, I wonder what he's going to say. Yeah, okay. Yeah, Jesus, you tell this wonderful parable of the, the prodigal son. Everybody's welcome. Yeah, yeah, okay. Let's see what you say about money. That's what the Pharisees are thinking. And at the end of it, the Pharisees are mocking him because they don't really like his ministry financial model. <laughs> Little do they know it's the only true model after the heart of God. All of this history between money and religion, it's absolutely distasteful in the eyes of Jesus, and it's contrary to the teachings of Jesus. And so today, Jesus has something to say to us, to say about the Father's heart towards money and materials. Jesus seeks to teach to us today that the kingdom of heaven and that having Jesus as our king is not just another religious enterprise, okay? Today, my hope is that by coming under the teaching of Jesus that you are pleasantly surprised. That's, that's, that's the point of this parable. It's a surprise parable. When Jesus says that the dishonest manager was commended by the manager, there would have been like a, <gasps> what? Kind of sound. Because I believe that we, just like the disciples, are going to be pleasantly surprised that following Christ means um, that we can have a freedom from money and materials rather than a slavery to it. That following Jesus means that we will have a desire to be generous, not an obligation or a burden. We won't feel condemned and guilty, but instead a life full of joy and wise investments. Is that what you want? That's what I want. Let's follow after what Christ says here. Again, this is a surprise parable. I want to compare it back to um, the parable from last week for the parable from Luke 15. And uh, it's so fitting that this parable is right there, right after the lost son parable, because they're surprises. In the end, you, you, you expect one thing and you hear another. Both the manager and the son... And the, the manager in the shrewd manager story and the son in the prodigal son story, they're both in, in, given something to be responsible for. The son is given his, his one third and the manager is given responsibility. 
They both fail and both squander it. They both are flawed. In fact, the word used to describe the son in his squandering of money is the same exact word used for the manager in his squandering of the owner's money. It's that word prodigal. Prodigal means wasteful spending. And both of them, both after realizing their guilt, both after realizing they've come to the end of themselves, they both make their own plan. They both have a deal that they're going to try and see through. And at the end of the story, we're all surprised. The audience is surprised by what? By the grace and the commendation of the original owner that they cheated. Jesus pairs these two parables together to say this. He says, as prodigal spenders, who we are, as serial sinners who have been wasting our lives, the first thing we need to do is be like the prodigal son. That's the very first thing. Be like the prodigal son. Run to the arms of the father and embrace being returned. But the next thing we need to do is based off this prodigal manager. And he's saying, if the unbeliever can be this committed, this shrewd, and this forward-thinking toward their immediate future, how much more should the Christian be toward eternal life? Now, before we get there, I want to reiterate what Jesus is saying and that the first thing we all need to do is we all need to become a disciple. This teaching is for disciples, and that's the same thing for today. This teaching today, for those who are joining us online or in person, this teaching is for those who have chosen to follow Jesus Christ with their whole life. Even in verse 8, you can see the master commanded the dishonest manager for the shrewdness. And Jesus says, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Jesus has a lesson today for the sons of light. He's telling the story of the sinful manager, saying there's something we can learn from this guy's bad behavior. But he's not saying that we need to be exactly like the sons of this world. He's saying there's something we can learn. But this is only meant to be applied for those who are followers of Christ, those who have given their life to Jesus Christ. So here's my warning and here's my invite for you today. The remainder of this message, the remainder of this sermon, the remainder of this passage will be useless to you if you do not choose right now to follow Jesus Christ with your whole life. If you try to put into practice the rest of what this teaching is saying, if you don't first surrender your life to Jesus Christ, you will flop and fail. If you try to look like a Christian but have not decided to follow Jesus Christ and give him your whole entire life, you will end up a slave to money nonetheless. That's just the reality because our functional fixedness on how money and materials are to be used can only be shifted if we first surrender to Jesus. There's nothing more important right now there just is nothing more important right now. I, I have no financial advice for you. I have no, no hope for you other than Jesus Christ this morning. And so I ask you, I implore you, I say at this time, recognize that yes, you are a sinner, but yes, God loves you so much that he sent his only son. He paid the price for your sins so that you might become a son or daughter adopted into his family, that you might have life going through you and that you might live a different life so that your functional fixedness on sin and on the ways of this world would be gone. That is freedom that is available to you right now at no cost. So put your phone away. I don't know what's distracting you. Ignore the smoke. Bow your head and talk to the Lord right now and say, God, I want to give you my life. And this, is, this leads us into what we see in this story and Jesus' first point, that we need to have urgency. We need to have urgency as those who are following Jesus Christ. We need to have urgency. In the, in the story, the manager is fired and given one last day and he does not waste it. He goes to the first guy who owes 100 measures of oil and he says very quickly, quickly, write 50. 
He owed 100, now he owes 50. And by the way, one measure of oil is around nine gallons of oil. And uh, this is not oil you get from the ground. This is olive oil, okay? So 900 gallons of olive oil. That's a lot of olives. Let's be honest. That's a lot of olives. I'm, I get frustrated if somebody's like, I'm going to have some, why don't we try some freshly squeezed orange juice? You squeeze one orange, like with all of your might and all the tool, you might get a sip of orange juice. I don't know. That's what I find. Just give me the stuff from Concentrate. This guy owed 900 gallons of oil, olive oil. That's a lot of olives. But now he has a, a new best friend. He has a new buddy because his new buddy's going to help him out. He's only going to owe 450 gallons of olive oil. Well, that, yeah, that's the deal. That's the deal the, man, the manager is making. He's saying, listen, you can cut this in half. You'll only owe half. And that's why, and then he rushes him and he says, quickly, write this down. Write it down quickly. Okay, if you go to anywhere that is trying to sell you something, okay, a, I don't know, a car dealership, Best Buy with a computer, and they go, quick, quick, make a decision. You know, r radar should be going off, right? Yeah. You're like, okay, why are they forcing me, pushing me, right? Well, this guy is doing that. He's saying, quickly write this down because he understands the urgency. I had a lot of jobs as a teenager, a lot of jobs. I started as a paper boy. I worked at Taco Bell and Zeller's. I did, I did all sorts of things. Well, I did work at Zeller's, and I only worked there for a total of two weeks. <laughs> now I'm going to explain why I only worked there for two weeks. Just hold on. But uh, very quickly in my uh, interviews, they realized that I'm a fast-talking, charming young guy, and so they hired me to be a cashier, but they trained me to sell credit cards, right? <laughs> if you remember Zeller's, come and get a Zeller's credit card. Okay. Well, one of my first nights being trained, I'm standing in the till aisle, and they're passing items through, and my manager is behind me, and she's trying to train me and teach me what to do and, you know, find the code and all this kind of stuff. I wasn't really paying attention. Um, but... I, I see this guy come through, and it's a busy night, and this guy comes through, and he's got, I don't know, a couple bottles of water, a stick of gum, and he goes, and I'm ringing them through, and just before he, he pays, he goes, could you just exchange a quick little bit of money for me? I'm like, sure, and I, I kind of looked at my manager, and I'm like, it's, it's okay that we do this, right? Like, I, I don't know, do, do we tell him to just go find a bank? And she, no, 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 it's no big deal. So he hands me three $100 bills for a stick of gum and two water bottles. So, okay, all right. I have an alarm going off in my head, and I'm like, I don't know. But there's a long lineup, and I'm new. And, and so I looked at my manager, and I said, like, I don't know. This doesn't seem right. Like, you know, and she's like, just go ahead. It's okay. I'm watching. And so I go, okay. So he counts it out. One, two, three. He goes, I want 15 $20 bills, okay? That'll, that'll work out, or whatever it is. And he counts it. He's making me count. And as I'm counting, he's counting. And then actually he goes, actually, uh, now that I think about it, if I could have two 50s for uh, some of those uh, five 20s. So I'll, he counts out those five 20s. And then he's like, give me two 50s. One, two. And so we did this for a few minutes. Buddy gets away with $200 worth of cash. All right? It's called a quick cash scam okay what they do is they go and they find and they prey on pimple-faced new employees okay all right with their manager watching them and the pressure of a lot of people in line and this is what he did he took the the urgency of the lineup he took the urgency of this insecure voice cracking teenage boy and he 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 used that to his advantage now i'll tell you why i only worked there two weeks the reason why I only worked there two weeks was because the next day we went in and we had a security meeting where the security comes out and they go, okay, everybody, well, we were the victim of a quick 
cash change, you know, scam. And, um, and they preyed on our new employee, which is obviously me. So now I'm not just pimple faced, I'm blushed red in embarrassment. And, um, <clears throat> and the manager who was watching me that night pipes up and goes, I told him not to. Yes! I know! That's why I worked there two weeks. I was like, I'm out of here. I'm not working for someone like that. Okay. Anyways, I had to get that off my chest, as you can tell. <laughs> the man in the story, the man in the story in the parable, he had such an urgency, right? He has this urgency because he knows he's being fired, all right? He knows that he can't, he's not going to beg, he's not going to dig. I got to figure something out. I'm not going to take the urgency of other people, and I'm going to use that. And so he uses this um, for self-preservation, but that's not what we're supposed to do. Jesus is saying, use urgency for the sake of the kingdom. We need to live like it's our last day of work, is what he's saying. We need to live with this type of urgency because time is limited. Our time on earth is limited. As, as I said last week, and as I love when Meldon says it, the death rate is 100%. All of us will die. We need to live generously. We need to live sacrificially, realizing that not only our time is limited, yes, our time is limited, but also realizing that the time is limited for everyone here on earth as well. I love the visual one pastor uses of an endless rope that goes on and on and on, and he says just those first couple inches is our time here on earth, and for the rest of eternity we live. We need to have urgency because our time on earth is short our time on earth is short, but we also need to have urgency because money is fading. Look in verse, look at verse nine with me, uh, how Jesus describes the wealth. And this is a, a thing that kind of may have hit a flag for you. In verse nine, it says, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. Unrighteous wealth. And what, what, what is meant by this unrighteous wealth, unrighteous mammon sometimes, depending on the translation, this term, it really means that it's worldly money. It's money that's of this world. It's money that is tainted by sin because the world uses money in such a way like this. And what he's saying is, he says, you, you know, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, underline when it fails, unrighteous, unrighteous wealth will fail. It will fail because money is fading it will fail. Jesus is describing it this way, and he's saying, if our time on earth is short and will come to an end, then our opportunity to use our money will also come to an end. Materials will also come to an end. You've probably heard the joke or the saying that there's never a U-Haul behind a hearse. You can't take it with you. You can't. You can't take your money or your house or your clothes or any of these things with you. Money on earth is what... what um, what I would describe as planned obsolescence. Have you heard of planned obsolescence in products? Have you heard this before? It's this idea that a company is making a product with an intentional design flaw or an intentionality that keeps you dependent on them as a company. It's like printers. We've, who, who here has their original printer or their original phone? No one, because eventually they stop making those cartridges for that printer, right? Or for your phone, they, stop, they, they give you an update that the battery life dies, or they give you an update that you suddenly can't use the app you always wanted to use. It's called planned obsolescence. It's when a company is making something so that you would depend on that company. It's so that you would have to upgrade and have to move up. Listen, Satan in the world is using money in such a way that it's planned obsolescence. It's planned so that you would be um, uh, forced into using it and forced into needing it more. And so Jesus says, use what wastes on this earth. Use what wastes away on the earth, wastes away and cannot come with you. Use what is temporary 
for things that last forever. For things and, and really for people, because people, our souls will last forever. And this gets us to our, last, our next point, that we need to think long term. Look at verse 9 again. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. Uh, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. And then he says, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. This story is the story of a man who is, who is conning people, all right? But he was conning his owner, and then now he's conning other people and giving them a cut of a deal so that they would owe him, right? That person that got the 450 gallons of oil that they don't have to make anymore, one day this manager is going to knock on their house going, hey, you remember that time that I cut you a deal? Listen, I just, I'm, at, I'm in between places right now. If I could stay on your couch. That's what he's doing. Well, the manager is doing this with, with the world's money, and he's doing it for self-preservation. Jesus does not say to do it for self-preservation. What he's saying, he's saying, realize that the people on earth that you know, the people that we see, they will live forever. Our souls will live forever. Think Long term, he's saying that our souls will last. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. There are no ordinary people, no ordinary people. Every person you talk to, you have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, and I'm going to throw in money. These are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. They will not last, not as long as our souls it, Im- it is immortals whom we joke with. It is immortals whom we work with. Immortals who we marry and snub and exploit because their soul will last forever in one place or another. This is what he's saying. Think long-term. The people we interact with, their souls last forever. And, and interestingly enough, this passage, the reason why I think it's also a shock is because it doesn't even say give to churches and ministries and organizations he's targeting people he's saying make friends people people matter that's what he's saying and and the bible does say lots about giving and generous generosity towards ministries and organizations and that's not jesus isn't contradicting that he's saying but maybe there's a category of generosity in our lives that we haven't considered yet Maybe because we're automatically depositing money into charities and churches and things like that, that we have stopped realizing that the souls of the people that we live next to and work next to and talk to, these people, their souls will last forever. We need to think long-term about their eternal dwelling. So when he says, make friends for yourselves, um, and and he's mentioning eternal dwellings, he's saying, here on this temporary earth, we interact every day with eternal beings. And if these people hear and respond to the gospel, one day they will be in heaven and they will no longer just be your earth friends, they will be your heaven friends. And that's good news. But just to clarify, Jesus is not saying you can buy your way to heaven and he's not saying you can buy anyone's way to heaven. Money cannot make your way to heaven. Jesus is still the only way to the Father. And salvation is still the completely free gift of God. But he's saying the temporary things of this world, like money and materials, if we are shrewd, if we are clever, can be used to share the gospel. They can demonstrate the gospel because the way we treat temporary materials, the way we treat these things in front of eternal beings demonstrates how convinced we are and how hopeful we are and how satisfying eternal life really is. I love the story of Zacchaeus. Everyone assumes he's short because he climbed a tree, right? The story of Zacchaeus is uh, he's a chief tax collector. You'll find it in Luke 19. And he climbs a sycamore tree. 
uh, and uh, Jesus sees him far away off, and he says, I must stay at your house today. Right? And, and I wonder if at this time that Jesus is with Zacchaeus, if he didn't reiterate this parable and teaching. You know why? It's because what it says here, it says that Zacchaeus gave half his goods to the poor, and if he's defrauded anyone or anything, he restored it fourfold. Four times the amount. So that means that if he owed, if he, if he defrauded someone $100, he paid them back $400. He didn't just pay back what he owed, he multiplied that and gave generously. If he owed $2,000, if my math is correct, he gave them back $8,000, okay? Zacchaeus was changed in one dinner with Jesus. And his life totally changed. And you see this in Zacchaeus in that he goes and he does this. And Jesus comments, today salvation has come to this house, to the house of Zacchaeus, since he is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. Zacchaeus in his behavior is reflecting that the son of man came to seek and save the lost. Zacchaeus in his generosity is showing what Jesus has done in his life. Zacchaeus is the parallel opposite. I don't know if that's a thing, but he's the parallel opposite of this manager. The manager is doing what he can to defraud other people to guarantee himself a home. And Zacchaeus is going and living generously, seeking people out to give generously to show that Jesus came to seek and save the lost, to guarantee others a home, an eternal home. Um, uh, if, you're, if you have heard of these things, maybe you've heard of some crazy ideas that have actually been denied at first. Things that worked out long term, but at first they were denied. Netflix was denied. Everyone's like, Blockbuster will live forever. <laughs> right? FedEx. Did you know that it was den denied at first? It was a, an idea at a, a school and the professor said, this idea will never come to pass. Will never come true. The telephone. Light bulbs. Computers, just personal computers. All this was, somebody thought this was going to work out and it would be a great idea in the long term. And as people would reject them, they would reject them all at first, but their founders could see the long game. Their founders could see maybe if the world had a vision for the future and what it could look like. Now, I'm not saying, I don't have some idea I'm pitching you that you, I needed some investment on. That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> Amen. All right. Um, I am, not, I am not saying that I've got some crazy idea. No, I'm saying that there is a, a good news, an everlasting good news that has been good news for all of time since Jesus Christ has come and changed the world. That good news, if we can see the long-term future, we could live generously, we can share the gospel, demonstrate the gospel, if we could let go of things that are material and temporary in this life. And I'm not saying this is easy either. This is hard. Because the world continually tells us to grab and hold and covet and keep and, 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 and save and spend. And Jesus is saying, you have eternal life before you. Look at it. Look in the long term. Look in the long distance. What would happen if we as believers, we used our separation from earthly wealth to demonstrate our guarantee of heavenly rewards? And then this is where Jesus starts to unpack in verse 10. It's beautiful. He starts to unpack and compare how we aren't supposed to be like the manager, how we aren't supposed to be, copy his bad example. 
This is a, a classic rabbinical way a rabbi would do this. They would teach a lesser to the greater ty- type of teaching. Look at if this can work in this context, just imagine what it would look like in the life of believers is what Jesus is saying. If we applied kingdom values, if we applied kingdom values rather, rather than worldly values. So read with me in 10 to 13. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. One who is dishonest in very little is dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to the true riches? If you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus longs for us to see the difference between the way the manager behaved and how the believer is to behave. This is a good lesson from a bad example, but let's look at the bad examples and let's see how Jesus wants us to be different. Verse 10 says, One who is faithful in very little is faithful in much. One who is dishonest in very little is dishonest in much. How many of us have heard, and I've, I've done this, how many of us have thought, if I had more, I'd give more. If I had more, I'd give more. And, and what Jesus is saying is that's just a false commitment we tell ourselves sometimes. I've said this to myself. We all know someone richer than us. Maybe not Jeff Bezos, but hopefully one day he will. So that he might understand that it, 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 just having more does not mean we will give more. If we're faithful in a little, we will be faithful in much. If we are dishonest in little, we will be dishonest in much. The manager was dishonest with all the opportunity he had, but Jesus is saying that he would have been dishonest even if he had lesser opportunities. And rather than pursuing material and money, we should pursue faithfulness. So the attitude of the world says, God, make me more rich. The the attitude of the kingdom says, God, make me more faithful. Make me more faithful in the little things and in the big and then verse 11, he says that if you have not been faithful in unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to the true riches? The manager was wasteful with the worldly money. Look how he treated people. His owner and his customers were just a means to an end to him. We're tempted to do this to people, to manipulate, to, to treat people as a commodity. But the, God says that if you can be trusted with earthly money, unrighteous wealth for the sake of sacred use, he would give you the true riches. And the true riches, yes, there are people who remind us that, yes, we will have crowns in heaven. We will be given much wonderful things in heaven. And yes, that's true. But in the end, it also says that we will lay our crowns down before Jesus. Because what's truly valuable in God's kingdom are his people. And we see that. We saw that in that prodigal son story. And we see that throughout scripture. God loves us so much. And so what we might want to think is, God, please give me more silver and more coin, more money. But the kingdom says, God, please entrust me with more souls. I want to care for people. I want to share the gospel with people. God, help me with that. Help me to not pursue silver and money, but to pursue souls and people. And then in verse 12, if you've not been faithful in that which is in others, who will give you that which is your own? That which is in others. The manager, in the son, in the prodigal son story, they're wasteful. They're, they're flippant with the owner's things. They manipulated other people and, and, and they, they set out for numero uno, right? They're out there, uh, how do I find a place for me? But what does he get left with? Nothing, but absolutely zero. And that's the deceiving reality of treating other people's stuff as if it's not theirs, but as if it's yours. That's the deceiving reality that the world says, you know, it, it, it's not really theirs. You, you can fight for it. You can take it. It's, it's rightfully yours, is what the world teaches us. 
but scripture makes it clear that everything we have, everything you own, every dollar in your bank or wallet, everything that you own is a gift that God gave you. Yet so often we naturally want to treat it as if it's completely ours to manipulate and use, don't we? You see, what the world says is that God can get my 10%, but when, the, when we're in the kingdom, we understand that God gave us everything. God gave us 100%. So we don't give back to the Lord something that, he, that we've earned and, okay, God, you, here's your allowance. We return to the Lord a portion of the great generosity that he has poured into our lives. At the Ritz-Carlton Hotel, <clears throat> Each employee that works there is allowed to spend up to $2,000 per guest per incident. Each employee, every employee, the bus boy, the, everybody, every chef, every waiter has a budget of $2,000, not per night, per guest, per incident. Okay? They're allowed to spend, so if you had like multiple incidents, you just, it's just going to be pouring out on you. All right? And they do this. They, they, they empower their employees on purpose like this so that their employees know that they can do whatever it takes to be hospitable, do whatever it takes to show love, do whatever it takes to be generous and make that person have an amazing experience. And a lot of people, they hear this and they say, well, that's interesting, that's fantastic. If it must be nice to be the Ritz-Carlton. They just have all this money they can just pour out on people, right? My organization can't afford to do the same. But the interesting thing is that while that full $2,000 is available, barely any of it is ever really used. It's rarely used. In fact, the average amount that they even use on an incident is so much lower. But the reason why they still do this is because it empowers their employees to make real decisions of hospitality, real decisions of life-changing experiences. Because when they understand that there is power behind what they have, when they understand that they don't have to worry about asking for more, they don't have to worry about the, whether or not they can afford to make someone else's experience great, they are free to care for those people, free to show love generously. What if Christians, what if we as believers, those who are disciples, we lived with this mindset of understanding how much is truly available to us from God? It's... It's the, it's the functional fixedness that needs to change in our lives. I know in my life as well. Recognizing how much God has not only given to us, but how much is still available to us. To, to release our grip from our materials and our monies and to put our eyes on the long term of the eternal life set before us. This is what Jesus Christ modeled. He went to the cross for the joy that was set before him. Yes, we can learn from the manager, but Jesus perfected the manager's model, completely perfected the manager's model because the manager used people. He used people to secure a place for himself. And Christ flips that right upside down. Jesus Christ decided to give himself sacrificially in order to secure a place for a people. That's the difference. The difference is when we treasure treasures instead of treasuring the people that God loves, we lose sight. We get fixated. You and I are here because of the shrewd love of Jesus. It's a weird way to describe it. Even just saying it out loud makes me have weird chills. I'm like, that doesn't sound right. But Jesus saw the joy set before him, and he endured the suffering and the wrath of the cross. He did that for you and for I. 
that we might have an eternal home to go to. That eternal home is available for everyone for free. And when we understand this, when this changes our lives, when the Holy Spirit lives in our lives in this way, and he frees us, he helps sets us free from captivity to money. We are no longer slaves to money. We become slaves to righteousness. We can no longer serve money. We serve God. Church, I'm not saying this from a perspective of someone who's got it together. Trust me. Trust me. I'm saying it as someone who just needs this to be worked out in my life. We cannot do this in our own efforts. We have to depend on the Lord. We need to sing his praises and ask God to work in our lives. That's the only way we're going to move forward with this. That's the only way that we can continue with the gospel going forth. And we have to understand that what Christ did is enough. Enough for you, enough for me. And if it's enough, then we need nothing else. Let me pray. Lord, help us in this. Help us as we seek your will, seek to live your ways. May we honor you, Lord, with every area of our life, holding nothing back. I pray, Lord God, I pray, Father, that you would stir in our hearts through your Holy Spirit, Lord, through, through, through understanding what you have done for us and how valuable people of this world are to you, Lord, would we go out with the gospel, saying that Christ is enough. In your name we pray. Amen.